a Mitch and Jeremy exclusive. Are you ready? On air. Online. On your smart speaker and wherever you stream. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews and episodes on demand now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it. Well, look, let's get right into this. Um, an hour before it's dark coming out on March 4th. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your music. They've been doing some phenomenal stuff on YouTube, too. Between, like, the documentaries and, like, different videos and stuff the last couple weeks that lead up to the record release. Uh, really good follow if you don't. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Steve Hogarth from Marillion. How you doing? Good morning. I'm stable. Thank you. <laughs> the one and only Marillion, by the way. Um, the mighty Marillion. <laughs> let me let me get right into some of the uh, topics on on this album because you said clearly you didn't want to write about uh, COVID and the pandemic and here you are you wrote about COVID and the pandemic and of course uh, the climate crisis uh, talk to me about writing an album that's sort of real world like the studio you recorded it in and not just you know babes and fast cars and beer. Well, you know, I'm 65, so my babes and fast cars days are kind of... <laughs> I think I wrote all those songs a while ago, um, and you can't keep writing them. So uh, you get you get to my age, you've got to start thinking about something else to write about, and, and um, there's plenty, you know. It's, it's just the real stuff, the stuff that actually bothers me. Um, and, yeah, you're quite right. I, I mean, the last thing I wanted to write about was the pandemic because I figured no one was going to want to hear about it. Um, but the reality was that once we got stuck into writing, because we did write this album during the lockdown, um, that was all there was, really. You know, the, the, the two biggest issues in my face were, were the climate crisis, the mass extinction, and the pandemic. And so... To talk about how I feel, which is basically what I do when I write songs, it was impossible not to reference those two things because they're the things that are bothering me most right now. Uh, that was the water, you know, uh, we were swimming in at that point in time. So it would have been impossible to write anything honest without writing about it. And, and even the songs, you know, reprogram the gene started life as a song about invincibility, you know, it's a song about feeling indestructible. And it, it very quickly kind of moved into feeling uh, fragile, you know, and, and, and a reminder that without the planet, we've had it. Um, <laughs> so it started out in this really egoistic, chest out kind of way, lyrically, but then... It, it slowly morphed into I'm going to be a friend of the earth, you know, because that's that's what I've got to be. Um, so bollocks to all the egoism, you know. Right. When you uh, deal with a topic like the pandemic on, on some of these songs, do, does it automatically date it? And, and are you worried that fans are going to be like, oh, for crying out loud, I've lived this for two years. I, I want to hear, you know, a party song. I want to hear something different. Are, are you worried about that? Or is it just like, no, this is what I'm feeling and this is what you're getting? Well, I, I, kind of in theory, I was worried about it. But then... Um, I think I've trodden the right line i think i think i kind of feel that 
I haven't just written, oh, my God, there's a pandemic. What are we going to do? Right. You know, I, I've, I've, I've tried to address it some of the time in metaphor, sometimes, you know, almost in psychedelia, you know, uh, I don't want to be food for the trees. Uh, I've been listening to Greta T, begins with the letter C, the cure is coming out as the cure is the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a bit wider than the, the just the pandemic. It's the cure overall. It's the cure for the planet. Um, I think there's too many of us. And uh, at some point, the planet is gonna gonna send something our way that makes makes COVID look like a walk in the park. Yeah, most likely. Unless unless we get ourselves together and 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 start trying to to be a bit more respectful to it, that's the conclusion. I can't escape. But it's interesting uh, you said that you're writing with you know metaphors in mind. It's not necessarily you're not just like yeah, I got my Fauci ouchie and COVID nineteen. <laughs> like it's you're not making it necessarily topical, but topical in a way where you can relate it to basically any type of global pandemic or disaster. By the way, what a great lyric, Fauci ouchie. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I'm gonna write that down. I've, I've written it down. <laughs> Um, just real quick, we're we're both here in Montreal, and every time you come here, it's an absolute love fest. You 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 don't do one show; you do three, four. You do an entire weekend. Uh, before I get into the where you recorded and Peter Gabriel and all that wonderful stuff, what does this city mean to you? Well, when I joined the band, they said to me, "Just wait till we go to Montreal. You're never going to feel a vibe like it." and I thought, well, you know, maybe for you, my friend, but uh, maybe I won't get it, you know, being the newbie and everything. And when, and when we came there the first time, I think we played a, a club called The Spectrum, which doesn't exist now, I don't think. I think they knocked it down to... They knocked it down to build a parking lot. To build, just, like, yeah. uh, just like Sonny and Cher said back in the day, knock it down and build a parking lot. Yep, 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 yep. Um, well, it was a good place, The Spectrum. Um had the most amazing nights there and they were love fests. Um, there's no other way of describing them. And so the, um, <clears throat> the Montreal crowd, in fact, the French Canadians in general, you know, in the Quebec sort of area, uh, is take, is taken us to heart in, in, in a way that it's hard for us to understand, but, but wonderful to feel. Mm-hmm. They really have, and and they love progressive rock. Whether it's you or Genesis or anything like that, it's just uh, other level. Uh, but since you mentioned joining the band at the time, you come in after Kaylee, after misplaced childhood. How was that for you in terms of stress and in terms? Because here you're, they're, they're, the band is riding the wave, the biggest single, the biggest album, the MTV, everything's going good, and then they change singers. Did you come in there going, listen, I don't care, I'm just going to do what I do? Or were you like, oh, God, can I live up to th-? What was it like, that those moments coming in? Well, I'm, I went. I was reluctant to go and meet the band because uh, I'd, 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 I'd mistakenly assumed that that's exactly where they would be coming from, that it would be a, a, a case of, here's our last album, it sold this many hundreds of thousands of copies or whatever, um, and this is how it sounds. Do you think you can do that? And I, I would have said, no, uh, thanks, bye. And that would have been the end of that. Um, 
So I wasn't even going to go. And then I got, I got a friend called Daryl Way, who was my drinking friend in Windsor at the time. <laughs> and he was an electric violinist, and he was, he was a big star in the 80s because he was in a band called Curved Air with yep. Sonny Christina, who married Stuart Copeland, who you may have heard of. Yep. Stuart Copeland actually drummed with Curved Air for a while, and I think Daryl might have even fired him, which, which wasn't good. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the rest is history. Um, and Daryl said, oh, no, you should go and meet them. They're, 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 they're nice people. I've, I've been around them, and they're nice people. So I went to see them, and um, I said, well, what do you want? What is it you're looking for? And they said, oh, we've heard what you do, and we really like it. And um, we've we've heard what you write, and we really like it. And we've heard how you sing, and um, we just want you to do what you do, and we'll do what we do, and we'll see what happens. And so that was a very different proposition to what I was expecting. So that gave me complete freedom to just do my thing and be myself, and and that was the brief. So in that sense, I was under no pressure to live up to anything. Um, it wasn't until we, we, we wrote Season's End quite quickly um, in a sort of a rush of, of creativity. We were all really happy with how it was working out. We went to a very nice studio called Hook End Manor and, and recorded it, and that was very luxurious. And I, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, to be honest. And then, um, and then after that, of course, we had to go out and play live. And that was the point where I suddenly thought, oh, hang on a minute. This might not be the walk in the park that it's been so far. You know, I'm, <laughs> I might be about to get strangled. And to make matters worse, our keyboard player, Mark Kelly, went to the local pub and promised the landlord we would do a show in his pub uh, in a fortnight's time. Wow. Um, this, is a place, this is a place that holds about, I don't know, 60 people. Uh, doesn't have a stage. It was literally just a room. So that was scary because I found myself then on stage, although there wasn't a stage, in front of very, very hardcore people who were all taller than me, who were all right in front of me. You know, I could reach out and touch me, reach out and strangle me. <laughs> and and so that was very scary. And so many people came to that show that that you couldn't get into the street that the pub was on. And nobody could get into the pub because it only held 60 people and uh, about 800 people rocked up, I think. Wow. So it was nuts. And we had to climb in through the window and all of that. And I got away with that, and we had quite a good. We played the we played King of Sunset Town. We played a few songs from the new album, and they went down really well. And then, of course, we came to do the tour proper, where uh, I, I unfortunately I could stand on a stage away from everybody. And um, every night it was great. Every night, you know, the first song people would be looking at me with one eye closed. Second song about the same, and but by the third song, you you you'd feel this sort of wave of relief go right the way through the room, you know, as they realized, oh no, this is going to be all right. Yeah, and that was that, really. Yeah, that that worked out. Here, just before I get to the new one, last question, just to follow up on that: when you came in, did they let you be you, or did they say, hey? 
you know, Fish does this or, or Rothery wants you to do, like, did they let you be you right away or did you have oh, to oh, sort yeah, of? Absolutely. Yeah, they weren't remotely interested in, in their past. Um, okay. And they weren't remotely worried either, which really surprised me. I thought, you know, as a band that's doing very well and the singer's just cleared off, surely they're going to be nervous. And they seemed just totally relaxed and everything's going to be fine. And every time I said, well, oh, no, that'll be great. So nobody was worried and nobody wanted me to do anything except follow my own instincts. And to be honest, in all the years I've been in the band, from then until today, no one's ever come up to me and said, uh, are you sure that's a good idea? I mean, not, one, not once in 33 years. So I've just been given the rope to hang myself if I'm going to hang myself. <laughs> in 33 years, it's kind of worked out, I would say. I think, I think you got the job. I think you're good. I've only hung myself occasionally. <laughs> um, you have in the past described uh, Peter Gabriel and Daryl Hall of Hollow Notes as... I don't want to say heroes, but as your vocal sort of, well, heroes, because <laughs> I don't have any other words. Yeah, um, people I really admire, uh, yeah, and, for sure. And, and you've been starstruck when, you, when you've met Peter, but now you're working at his studios. You, you recorded this at Real World. Talk to me about, about that and that studio, because it's, from, from my perspective, it's like this magical kingdom, but obviously it's just a studio. Well, you I also mean, look at the studio and it's like, it's basically a musical oasis. I mean, it's gorgeous. Yeah. I'd almost I'm looking like, at the pictures right now. It's, it's like it's, the equivalent of uh, what Lay Studio was back in the day. It, yeah. it, is, it is an extraordinary place. And um, the, the main control room Peter designed so that you could fit an entire band in the control room because during the 80s, uh, people were increasingly working in control rooms. They were starting to abandon the main room. And oh, the drum machines. You had the you had the Lindrum next to the console. Machine. Exactly. And then you'd go in the you'd go in the control room and play the bass. And then you'd go in the control room and lay a guitar down. You know, you might have your guitar amps out in the main room, but you'd actually be in the control room on a long lead recorded. So it it occurred to Peter that the best thing to do, would, if possible, would be to design a studio where, where the control room was, the recording space. And it's an amazing room. It's like a – it's sort of – I call it a cathedral of technology because it feels like a cathedral. It's got a really high ceiling. All one wall, as you can see probably in the pictures, is glass and natural light with a duck pond right outside so the water comes right up to the glass. Um the equipment is fantastic. It's all state of the art. There's a lot of really good vintage, uh, vintage microphone amps as well. So technologically, it's fabulous. Acoustically, it's 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 a wonderful space. Acoustically, if you go into that room, everything just sounds great before you plug it in. Um, so we really like to work there. We have our own studio. Um, and what we do is we do all the all the kind of legwork and the uh, the hard work, I suppose, in our own place, sometimes for years. And when we feel like we've arrived at a point where we've got songs and we're ready, um, we kind of treat ourselves by going to real world for a couple of weeks and living together, staying there. And enjoying that that equipment and that space, it, it, it's it is an extraordinary place. 
at the end of the day, I mean, this day of modern recording technology, you can pretty much do anything. But when you're really in a studio like that and you're using all this vintage gear, and are, are you going to Pro Tools or are you putting it down to tape? No, we, did, we didn't put anything down to tape. Although I have in the past, I've, I've put stuff in. When I made Ice Cream Genius, I recorded that into Tools. And then we we hired a multi-track. Craig Leon produced it, and we, and we we hired a multi-track analog tape recorder, and we we offloaded it all onto tape, and nice. then back, and then back into tools again, just for the processing, the tape compression, and the, the warmth. You know, whatever tape does to sound, yeah. We 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 used we used the machine as as almost like an, an out a piece of outboard gear and used it for its sound and then stuck it back in the box. But we didn't do that on, um, I mean, my co-producer, he, you know, that whole digital versus analog thing, He, his opinion is that provided you go to 90, and I'm going to get boring now. No, we love the gear go, talk on this show. So Okay, provided you go to 96K, mm-hmm. uh, it'll sound very natural. I think, I think uh, that, Digital's got a bad reputation because CDs are at 44.1 and it's not yeah. enough. And it, you do lose you do lose some of the, the well, net. Anything at 44.1, even radio these days. I mean, a lot of radio stations are still broadcasting at like 192 like bit, bit rate. It's just like, well, yeah. if I can bounce an MP3 at 320, well, why can't I hear the 320? Hmm. Hmm. So when you're recording anything, I mean, at, at 44.1, obviously at 96, jeez. Huge yeah, I, I've been I've been working with Trevor Horn lately as well. I've been doing some singing wow. with him. Wow! And he never goes above um, forty. Uh, what is it? What's half a ninety-six? Yeah, whatever half a ninety-six is. The other thing, I think it's 40, never, 40, 48? 48. 48, Exactly forty-eight k. He never goes above that. He, he says it's all. Um, well, I won't. I won't tell. You probably can't repeat on air what he thinks. You can. Of it. You can swear. We don't. You can care. say it. You can say it. Well, he thinks it's all a bit of a wank. This whole uh, ninety-six yeah. thing. But I don't. I mean, I know he's Trevor Horn and he's a genius. But I, I beg to differ. I, I, you do it. Ninety-six does sound better. Look, and I guess better, it's, it, it, yeah, it's a bigger file. It's a bigger file. It's a higher quality file. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. a bigger file. You know, never mind. Listen. Never mind the quality. Why the file? You know, there's, a, there's there's a big difference between you know 4K or whatever in in and well, 720. Look, there's there's a big difference between yellow box brand and craft. Uh, you know, I mean, you either get the Heinz ketchup or you get the selection ketchup. And um, let me but just at quickly. The end of the day, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's about the music. I mean, yeah, it is. So just I mean a great a great song recorded badly is still a great song, and a shit song recorded really well is still. A shit song. <laughs> well, let me quickly ask you about that because some of the the reviews I'm reading is you know between this and Fear and and some of the later albums of the last few years, you are making better music now apparently, or I would say. Then in the past, you're you're really firing at, at at full speed. Talk to me about about not just being a you know a tribute band or or a, a a a heritage act, but actually being vibrant and putting out this great new music. And 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 talk to me about that a bit. Well, that attitude 
just comes from the band and, and the producer as well, Mike. When we started work on this one, I mean, Mike's produced, gosh, about four, I mean, just about everything we've done since Marbles, I think, I think Mike's done. Um, and so he's made the journey with us and, and he's got to know us better and better along the way. Um, and after, when we first came to start the jam sessions to start writing this one, he did say, I don't want to produce this next album unless every song that's on it could have, could have been on fear, you know, wouldn't have sounded like a poor relation on fear. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, you know, that's a tall order because you, I, I, fear was a pretty extraordinary piece of work, um, you know, and, and went down very well as well. So it's always a terrible uh, you know, it breaks your head, the thought of climbing that mountain again and the mountain getting even steeper and even higher each time. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so why bother? Why not just say to your fans, listen, we're going to come to Montreal, we're going to do our love fest, we're going to play all the hits, and that's it. Forget yeah. new music. Fuck it. It's we're just, not going to bother. It's not what we're about. You know, we're, we're not a hit band. That, that's That's not been the ethos you know, from word go, um, right. mm. we, we, we kind of aren't part of the record business. Um, and uh, we're not part of the music business. So if you try and apply any of the accepted wisdom of the music business to us, you'll get nowhere because it's not what we're about. Um, right. we're not about, we're not really about radio. We're not about hit singles. We're not about pop tunes. We're not about the formula. You're just not about the formula. We're not about identifying our market and making something that will, you know, will will let's let's take money out of those kids. You mean pockets. TikTok's not a big deal to Marillion? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. no I, I think the attention spans about an hour and a half too short. Uh, cope with us. Oh my god! Can you imagine a, 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 a Marillion TikTok channel? That'd be great. That'd be All hilarious. the kind of people dancing to the uh, Fear soundtrack. Um, yeah, why not? And uh, b before we wrap up, our our first guest this week was Nick Collins, who of course is Phil Collins' son. I just want to go back on that Peter Gabriel thing. What was it about him? Because, I mean, I, I I'm just sitting here listening to Peter Gabriel after Peter Gabriel CD. What was it about him that that strikes you? To me. It's all the rhythms and how the songs are organized. There's, it's just, there's almost like an African rhythm that just, it just drives. What was it about you that you just went, yeah, that's my guy? Well, I discovered I discovered Peter way back in the way back when uh, they were when they just made Nursery Crime when I was oh, wow. seventeen or something. And I went to all of those shows. I, I saw them do Nursery Crime, I saw them do Foxtrot, and I saw them do Selling England by the Pound, and I saw them do The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. So I saw all that stuff live. Um, what I liked about him was the fact that he was strange. You know, he was clearly creative, strange, yeah. like a space alien back then. He was like something that wasn't quite of this earth. He'd got that same quality that Bowie had, you know, in his early days when you th that is a human being, right? It's, it's, it, or it's <laughs> like as he crashed in a spaceship, crawled out and joined a band. Mm -hmm. um, he had that sort of 
um, aura about him. I mean, of course, back then he used to shave that channel in the top of his head, paint his face white, so he did look like an alien. But he's always had that tone in his voice, that that scratchy extra extra thing in his voice um, that sounds slightly ceramic. Um and it sounds wonderful live. It's a voice. It's a voice that has great presence through a PA as well. And he's a great singer. So I've always admired. He's a great frontman and a great showman. Because you go see those shows, and there's just something. It's not just here's my song, here's my band. There's a whole cons. It's there's a vibe to it. Well, I've, I've I learned quite early on that you shouldn't climb onto a stage if if you're going to stare at your shoes. Uh, and and really. Climbing onto a stage is not a right, it's a privilege, and you should earn it. You should earn it, and you should do something interesting. Yeah. Um, that's why I loved The Who. I went to see The Who uh, in Manchester when I was quite young, uh, you know, and, and they, they were on The Who by Numbers album, and they were playing all these amazing songs, but the energy was unreal. I mean, unreal, like like their lives depended on it. I mean, it was that kind of commitment. And so The Who taught me commitment. Uh, I guess Peter taught me strangeness and having an edge. Um, Being unique. That's great. You know, and, and so that's where maybe that's where my commitment and strangeness comes from. You know, I, I realized you've got to have that. Um, and that you should perform. And if to some, I mean, I'm a bit different to those guys in a way. Maybe I'm, <clears throat> I'm more like Pete Townsend in a way than I am like Peter because I write songs that are very core to myself mm -hmm. and what I believe in and what makes me tick. Right. I don't think Peter does that so much. He writes about things and people, other people. You know, he'll write about Steve Biko or Nelson right. Mandela, or he'll, he'll write he'll write about someone who's just lost their job. Don't give up and all of that. Yeah. Um, he doesn't really expose his inner self. He, re you know, he wears he wears the mask quite metaphorically. I don't. I don't wear a mask at all. I expose completely who I am and what makes me tick. And in that sense, I've probably got more to do with Pete Townsend than I, I have. A, Peter G. There aren't too many people who expose themselves to the extent that that I do. To be honest, it, it's it's yeah. not always a comfortable feeling. Here, I know Jeremy has one last question, but uh, just quickly, when when Phil Collins comes in and they start doing "Follow You, Follow Me" and "Misunderstanding," do you bail and say "I'm out," or did you follow along and say, "All right, it's a, it's a new version. I like this. I'm down." Oh. Because they're great songs. I, mean, I kind of had bailed anyway by then because okay. I'd got a bit older and I'd, I'd stopped listening to prog rock altogether and I'd started listening. I kind of started listening to a lot of Joni Mitchell and then through the, the Court and Spark and then Hajira and all of that when she nice. when she was working with Jaco Pastorius. Mm. And then I, I got into a band called the Blue Nile, um, uh, an Edinburgh band. You know about the Blue Nile? Uh, a if, bit, no. if you don't get stuck in because it's extraordinary and, and they have a singer called Paul Buchanan and he was the first person I ever heard who sang from his soul like 
like a madman on a, on a, on a lawn in, in an asylum, you know, um, without any self consciousness whatsoever. And I fell in love with his voice. And I would uh, I, I would really recommend you check you check the Blue Nile out. Um, I went to see the Blue Nile when they first played live in London, and Peter Gabriel was on the front row, sitting next to Annie Lennox, and sitting next to Chrissy Hind, and they were all crying. Wow! So that gives you an idea what you're dealing with there. It's a, it's it's an artist's band, really. Damn, I'm gonna have to check that out. Huh. There you go, Blue Nile. Blue Nile. Blue Nile. Blue Nile. Blue Nile. I wrote it down, Blue Nile. Check it out. Uh, we got to wrap up here, but an hour before it's dark, available March fourth this Friday, or if you're hearing it, it's available now. Uh, you can get it wherever you get your music. I saw you guys signing a whole bunch of uh, LPs on your Instagram and stuff. Like, I'm surprised your hand hasn't fallen off yet. <laughs> that, that, was, that looked very desperate. <laughs> that was twelve thousand albums. Yeah, three days. How many did you sign? 12,000. 12,000? Yep. Oh, man. Now, as you go on, does your autograph just slightly just, just become an S or H? Is it like... It's, it's, it starts to control you. It, it starts coming up the pen towards you. You know, you know what? It, I've got respect for you for signing. It's a life of its own and moves you around. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I got respect for you for signing them, though, because, you know, Jimmy Page took a whole lot of flack online because he just started taking a stamp wherever he went and he just stamps his autograph. Into... <laughs> uh, what, what do you expect from these old fellas? <laughs> telling you. That's but that, that's a great, it's a great visual if you haven't seen it. That Just this warehouse with stacks of box sets or CDs or whatever. And they're yeah. signing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all five of us. We had a I felt sympathy. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, look, uh, let's get out of here. It was so great to meet you. And uh, next time we come to Montreal, definitely there. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Merci bien, as we say. It's uh, it's always like going to church, coming to our gigs in Montreal. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. Merci. All right. Thank you for well, the time, gentlemen. Merci right. bien. Thank you. See you later. Cheers. Bien. An all new episode of the Mitchell Fun and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews, bonus content, and episodes on demand now. Visit youtube.com slash Jeremy White Show. Follow Mitch and Jeremy on Twitter. Yeah, they're verified. At Mitch LaFon and at Jeremy White MTL.